think about the passage, let me prepare us in this way. Um, maybe eight years ago, there was a, a gallery exhibit on this block that was, uh, had a, it was an exhibition of, of Pablo Picasso, some of Pablo Picasso's work. And what was cool about the exhibit was that it wasn't just the finished product, but it was these sketches that led up to the masterpiece. So you get to see the work in process. Um, and what I really appreciate about that was that uh, as we think about Jonah, is that he's a person in process. He's a prophet in process. He's just like you and I. Uh, he's not a finished work. There's still work to be done. He's not a masterpiece. Um, but we get to see him learn and grow over these, these four chapters. Uh, even a prophet of God has to learn and grow. And so in the first sketch or the first chapter, we saw that Jonah was called to go to this great city of Nineveh. And, but they were his, the sworn enemy of Israel. And so he balked at the idea. He fled. He went to, sailed on a, on a ship uh, 2,000 miles in a different direction, tried to go that far in another direction. Uh, but in chapter two, the second sketch, if you will, we see that he has, uh, he's now in the belly of a fish. He's come to the end of himself. He tried to go to Tarshish, but he never arrives. And he's at the bottom of the sea and he's repentant. And he prays and he desires to, to be restored to God. And then he's vomited out onto the fish, resurrected, right? And in chapter three, he actually half-heartedly goes uh, to Nineveh uh, out of a call of obedience. And he preaches to Nineveh. And when he preaches to Nineveh, the most miraculous thing happens. They actually hear him. Uh, or should I say they hear God? And they turn and they repent. And um, which leads us to our, our um, fourth sketch here. So let me go ahead and I'm going to read from the word of God. This is Jonah chapter four. And it goes like this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly that they repented. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. And sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it uh, come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, 
and also much cattle. That's the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we long for a lot of the themes that we hear in this passage for justice and mercy and, and righteousness and, and healing, Lord. And we often don't understand the ways that you work. And so, Lord, I pray that in this time that you would teach us uh, from your word uh, more about ourselves, more about our place in this world, but also about you and what you're doing and how the questions that you ask of us are actually probably more important than the questions that we ask of you. Would you grant us that, Lord, by grace? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the gist is, is that Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached. They repented. And God relented. He, he did not bring wrath down upon Nineveh. Jonah went to preach. And what ended up happening is they ended up preaching to him by their actions and their behavior. They showed him what true repentance, what true turning to God looks like. They, they showed him what true forgiveness looks like in a life. And so in order for Jonah to have a greater understanding of that, what does God do? Does he read him doctrine? No, he actually does what is probably the most helpful thing for all of us. He begins to ask him questions because there's nothing like having somebody ask you the right question at the right time that tells that helps us most in our own uh, process of self-discovery. And out of that, we don't necessarily see it here, but we can know that Jonah begins to grow. He begins to change. And the reason he, we can say he begins to grow and he begins to change is because he wrote this letter. He puts himself forward as a case study. And so let's consider this question that God asks him. Do you, do you, Jonah, have a right to be angry? When it comes to those who receive God's mercy, uh, uh, do you have a right to be angry? When it comes to, to uh, understanding who gets to receive God's mercy and, and who does not, uh, does Jonah have a right to be angry? And to the, to the degree that you and I reflect on that question around God's righteousness or, or excuse me, God's mercy, maybe we'll be shaped as well. So here's the question. Do we have a right to be angry? And I think the answer is it depends. It depends on how we understand God's mercy. It depends on how we understand his justice. And it depends on how we understand God's love. So first, how do we understand God's mercy? Uh, I think if we want to understand God's mercy best, it's best to look at it through the lens of Jonah's anger. Jonah's anger is one of the, it's like so obvious in this passage, right? Five out of the five times, I think in 11 verses, it mentions that Jonah's angry. And if it mentions it that much, it's not just that he's perturbed, it's, it's that he's furious. He's enraged. See, the very reason that he, did, he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knew that God would extend his mercy to them. See, he wasn't afraid that he would go as a prophet of God and preach to them and his preaching would be ineffectual. He knew that if he went, his preaching would be effectual. That Nineveh would receive mercy. And he's furious about that. And he doesn't just question uh, God's mercy, but in this, he's questioning God's character. Listen to what he says. He says, I knew you were, you were slow to anger. 
I knew you were abounding in steadfast love. In other words, I knew you were who you said you were, God. That if the Ninevites showed just a hint of repentance, that you would just shower them with compassion, that you would shower them with kindness. And the, maybe in looking at the first verse, we can learn a little bit about sort of the details, if you will, of God's mercy. In the first verse, it says, uh, it says that something seemed very wrong to Jonah. And that's an English translation, but in the original language, it says that God's mercy to Jonah was excessive. That it was excessive, and that's the first thing we can learn about mercy in general, right? What does it mean to be excessive? It means to, uh, excessive means more than necessary. Excessive means disproportionate. It means extravagant. It means imprudent. And so here you have these Assyrian, uh, this Assyrian nation, that's where Nineveh was. They, they were, uh, you know, a very affluent culture, but they were a very brutal culture. And for generations, they brutalized the nations around them. And so what happens? God comes, sends Jonah to Nineveh. He preaches for just a couple of days. They ex exhibit uh, signs of repentance for just a couple of days. And what does God do? He extends them mercy. And so Jonah is sitting there going, that's excessive. That doesn't match what they've actually done. He doesn't think Nineveh deserves God's mercy. He doesn't think Nineveh is worthy of God's mercy. And guess what? They're not. See, that's the very point. Mercy, God's mercy, is always excessive. Mercy is excessive in its nature. But what Jonah is not recognizing, and what is so obvious, is that nobody, including himself, deserves mercy. Mercy is excessive by nature. Because you're giving someone something that they don't actually deserve. So it's excessive to you and I. It's excessive to Jonah. But it's not excessive to God. In fact, mercy is uh, this kind of mercy which is true mercy, is natural to God. Going back to the men's group. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, the men have been talking about this one theological idea, and we've had to look at it for two weeks in a row because we cannot quite wrap our heads around it. And it's the idea that God's mercy is natural to him and his wrath is unnatural to him. That God's mercy is natural to him, that the inclination of his heart is one that just wants to pour out mercy excessive in, in, in abundance, right? That's his natural inclination. That's the bent of his, of his heart. But what uh, is not natural is his wrath. But that is not as comfortable, if you shall we say, as pouring out mercy. Now, he extends wrath, right? Because there is injustice in the world. And there, because there's injustice in the world, there is a uh, justice must be served, right? And so he does that. But what the theologians call that is his strange work, not his natural work. So there's his natural work and there's his strange work. But the natural work of, so to talk about his strange work, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 33 says that he does not afflict from his heart. That God afflicts, but it doesn't just come out of his heart in the same way that mercy comes out of his heart. What does that mean? It means he doesn't take delight in bringing wrath. 
is strange work for him. But mercy is natural to him. It flows from his heart towards any who are in need. And maybe the best example of that, and here's why, maybe this is the way to say it, here's why we had a hard time thinking it through that and really uh, having our minds shaped by that because we sort of all grew up with this idea that the God of the Old Testament is this cold, austere God, but the God of the New Testament is warm and loving. But this is contradicting that. This is actually saying the heart of God is always bent towards mercy. That's his natural inclination. And the best probably uh, story about that is found in Luke 15. And Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. Or the story of the prodigal sons, right? And in Luke 15, Jesus is teaching a group of people, both uh, those who are rebels of God, who are sinners, shall we say, and those who are the Pharisees. And they're the teachers of, of the law. So it's a mixed audience. And he's telling in the first century a story about the nature of God and the nature of men in their relationship to God's mercy. And he says, here's the story about a guy, a father who owns this massive estate. And he's got two sons. And this one, old, the younger son comes to him and he says, hey, I want my share of the estate. And so the father begrudgingly he gives it to him, not begrudgingly because he doesn't want him to have it, because he doesn't want him to leave. But the son takes his share of the estate and he goes in, it says he squanders it. And for a couple of years, he just spends it on, on wine, women, and song, you might say. And then he finds himself in a, in, a, um, in a pigsty eating with pigs. And he begins to dream about being at home with the father and saying, I could actually be there. How did I end up here? And so he gets up and he goes home. And when the father sees him far away, coming towards him, it says the father uh, grabs up his robes and begins to run to him. And before he can ever say, forgive me, he throws his arms around him. He just embraces him. He says, come home, come home. I'm so glad you're here. So that's the younger son. And what happens? He says, look, we're going to throw up the party. The father says, we're going to throw a party. I'm going to kill the fatty calf. Right? We know the story. And what does the elder brother say? Father, that's excessive. He doesn't deserve that mercy. I've been here for, I've never left you. I've always been here. And the father teaches both, uh, the father teaches the, the, the older son. He says, son, I've always been with you. I've always loved you. You've always had my love. But the younger son has returned. We should rejoice in this. See, his heart is bent towards mercy. You know what commentators say that this, that this prodigal story, son story is all about? They said it's all about Jonah. That Jonah is both the younger son in chapters one and two and the elder son in chapters three and four. It's all about a recapitulation of Jonah. But it's also what's Jonah all about? It's all about us too. That we don't know how to, we don't know how to understand our relationship with God. That we don't understand how to take mercy. That we love mercy when it comes to us receiving it. We question mercy when it's given to those that we find are unmerciful in the world. So Jonah says to the Lord, he says to God, uh, 
I don't, I don't trust this mercy. It's excessive, but he doesn't just say it's excessive. In the Hebrew, he says it's excessive and evil. Why would he say it's evil? I think there's good reasons for why he says it's evil. Because whenever a guilty person or a group of people are acquitted, when they have done something wrong, that's evil. Does that make sense? Whenever a group of people are acquitted, even though they've done something wrong and there's not justice brought to that individual or to that group of people, that is evil. Which brings us to the second point, which is God's justice. See, the Assyrians deserved wrath. Nineveh deserved wrath. They didn't deserve mercy. And what Jonah is complaining about, what he's upset about, what he's enraged about is that he's, it's, it, he perceives that God's justice is somehow undercut by God's mercy here. That God isn't actually being merciful at all. He's actually allowing them to get away with atrocities in the world. Which tells us, does he really know this God that he actually serves. But what he doesn't understand is that God's just justice doesn't circ or God's mercy doesn't circumvent circumvent justice or ignore justice, but God's justice goes through mercy and beyond, or excuse me, God's mercy goes through and beyond justice. That makes sense. That God's mercy goes beyond justice. Um, Peter Kreeft is a uh, in his book uh, Back to Virtue explains how God's that that when God uh, forgives somebody he's not forgetting he is also just simply recognizing that that um, well let me read the quote and, and we'll have a better understanding brief says mercy goes beyond justice it does not undercut it see if I forgive you a hundred dollar debt that you owe me that means I must I must uh, I must use $100 of my own money to pay my creditors. I cannot really make you $100 richer without making myself $100 poorer. If the debt is objectively real, it must be paid. And if it is my money that repays your debt, I must pay it. See, God never says to Nineveh, forget the atrocities that you've done. He just says, I forgive it. And what does he do? He takes the debt upon himself. He takes the debt upon himself. So what that shows us here is that, that Jonah is not so much concerned with justice as he is concerned with judgment. He's not looking for his enemies to receive justice in the world. He's looking for them to receive judgment. And what, he, what that means is that revenge is more important to him than mercy. That God's grace is not enough. That he, he simply, he wants he wants revenge. Now, what is revenge? Revenge is the desire to make those who hurt you experience that same hurt themselves and much, much more. Revenge is to have others feel the pain that, that you have felt and to know that you are making them feel it. Revenge means that you get the last word. But what Jonah doesn't realize is that revenge will not ultimately satisfy because grace is greater than our revenge because God's grace, God's mercy produces in the perpetrator that what is uh, produces in the perpetrator what is most wanted by the victims, and that is the recognition of wrongs that are done, 
that is a greater understanding of what motivated them to do that. It leads to repentance and it leads to reconciliation. And those that process actually brings about healing. And when understanding and repentance and healing take place, that means that God has had the last word and that true justice is experienced. Um, at, the fall of, at the fall of apartheid, um, there was a commission put together called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This was a commission that was put together by Desmond Tutu and the whole world will study what they did on the other end of apartheid, how they sought to bring about peace and, and real reconciliation in South Africa after the atrocities of apartheid. And so this uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, they jettisoned two extremes, uh, two opposite extremes. And the one was, um, the one was just blanket amnesty, sort of a forgive and forget, let's move on. They just said, we're not gonna do that. That's not something we're gonna do, that's not justice. But they also said, we're not gonna hold a military tribunal for war criminals of everybody who was involved and who per perpetrated amnesty. So we're not gonna do that either. But what, what did they, and that's, you know, of course what took place in World War II. They went for a third option, they went for a third way. And this was, this was the way, they granted amnesty to individuals in exchange for a full disclosure relating to the crime of which amnesty was being sought. Sounds a little bit legal. I'll read it again. They granted amnesty to individuals in exchange for a full disclosure relating to the crime for which amnesty was being sought. That was saying, if you confess and admit to what you've done, you'll be free. That's exactly what God does to, to Nineveh. Do you know what you've done? If you know what you've done, if you have real understanding, then I'll free you. I'll forgive you. Desmond Tutu says this, this is what uh, the heart of restorative justice. He says the central concern in the healing of breaches, uh, he says restorative justice, the central concern is the healing of breaches, the redressing of imbalances, the restoration of broken relationships, a seeking to rehabilitate both the victim and the perpetrator who should be given the opportunity to be reintegrated into the community he is injured by his offense. Some forms of justice bring an adversarial approach, which curbs the excesses of revenge. But by contrast, restorative justice focuses on both the reparation of harm done and the healing of relationships. It is concerned about the needs of both the victims and the offenders. It uses a collaborative approach to justice and seeks reconciliation. That's what God's trying to do with Nineveh. God is trying to bring both the victims and the perpetrators together, and yet Jonah doesn't want anything to do with it. He's not ready for it. He doesn't understand God's mercy. How can we understand God's mercy? I think it's really helpful to look at Jesus and to understand God's love. There's a, a last question in the chapter there, isn't there? And the question is put to, Jesus, or put to Jonah like this. He says, am I the creator of all things not to care for my own creation? the people of this great city. And for whatever reason, Jonah doesn't answer this question, but it's left there for all of Israel. It's left there just sort of hanging in the air and it hangs in the air for about 800 years until Jesus comes. And he does in some sense, exactly what Jonah's doing here in this passage. 
He's standing on a bluff overseeing the city. And he's weeping, but he's weeping for very different reasons. He's not weeping in anger at his city, but he's uh, who won't turn. He's weeping uh, because he wants them so bad to turn, because he loves them so much that he wants to bring reconciliation himself. So what does he do? He does everything that Jonah doesn't do. He sets aside his own dignity so that other persons could share in God's great power, share in God's great mercy. For Jonah was called to uh, called by God to a people that he didn't love. Jesus was called to a people who didn't love him. And they were his very own. They, and yet they didn't know him. They didn't seek to receive him. Jesus here volunteers and volunteers to be sacrificed on a cross so that we could be spared God's wrath. Jesus knows that there is a justice that needs to be paid, but he also knows that there's a righteousness that needs to be satisfied. And God knows that only in his perfect son can that righteousness actually be satisfied. So he gives his life to make a payment, the kind of payment that Peter Kreef was talking about. And that is not only the perfect satisfaction of God's wrath, but it's also the perfect example of how to live as people who have been uh, experienced that mercy in the world. Um, there was an article in the New York Times a while ago um, talking about nonviolent protests and how difficult it is to actually be a nonviolent protester and how the kinds of abuse that people take, both verbal and physical, is so challenging that most people can't be nonviolent protesters. It takes training. And so they'd said uh, that Dr. King was quoting Dr. Quick, Dr. Martin Luther King, that he knew this very well. And the article says, says uh, that there is that in uh, <clears throat> that those who, I don't want to say this, that, that when you, when you uh, stand as a nonviolent protester, there's nothing more powerful than to see somebody actually experience the blows. But to deposit yourself as a nonviolent protester and then yet cave and respond to violence, there's nothing more discouraging to see. And so he says there's something unique that happens when you see somebody receive those blows or take that violence. And this is what the article says. Sometimes being on the receiving end of, of violence is the whole point. That's how you expose the hypocrisy. That's how you, you expose the rot that you're struggling against. They attacked unprovoked. He's talking about the civil rights movement. You don't counterattack. You're hurt. The world sees. Hearts change. It takes courage. Your body ends up being the canvas that bears the evidence of the violence that you're fighting against. See, when we read stories like Jonah, they should make us ask questions about our relationship to God's to God and to God's mercy. But they should always, stories like this should also make us want something so much more. Because we're like Jonah, we need something greater than Jonah. And Jesus Christ really is the masterpiece. Jesus isn't a person in process. He's not a prophet in process. He's actually God himself who's come 
And he knows that we need mercy. He knows that a, a debt has to be paid. And the most beautiful image for Christians is to see Christ on the cross, paying the debt for us, laying his life down for us. Does that mean that Jesus and Christians can never be angry? Of course not. Jesus was often angry. He overturns the tables, doesn't he? When, when people are suffering on the Sabbath, he fights to heal them. You know, I believe that Christians live with a low-grade low anger in their belly all the time about the injustice of this world and the injustice that we're a part of in this world. But the best example I know of uh, about the indwelling anger of Christians, of course, is in the movie The Avengers. And that's that scene where, uh, is it David Banner, Bruce Banner? Bruce Banner, thank you. Uh, in the scene, they're, they're up there by Grand Central Terminal, and you know the aliens are coming. It's, it looks like it's all over, and the Banner shows up, and he's just a guy. And they're like, all right, suit up. Let's go. It's time. Now's the time for you to get angry. Now's the time. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and he says, well, I have a secret for you. And they're like, what? And he says, I'm always angry. And he turns into the Hulk and he socks the alien, right? That's an image of what Christians should be like. Why? Because what's revealed is that that scientist banner is not controlled by his anger. He's in control of it, but it's always there. And he's not, he's not just reckless in his use of his anger, but it's pointed at the right thing at the right time, which is injustice, violence, right? evil. So should Christians be. So should we uh, as a church in this neighborhood who we're going to stand out. We're going to be different. We're going to maybe be different in the way that we live, different in the way that we think. We're going to receive blows. Every church does. And if we're not, we're actually probably not living in line with what the gospel actually teaches. But how do we respond to those blows we respond in the way that that we're taught here or you know shown here in in uh, not not in in terms of jonah but in terms of that article that we have to in some sense train ourselves to not respond but to look to look to the cross and see the way that he responds and knowing that in not responding glory awaits glory awaits let's pray heavenly father we can learn a lot about how to respond to anger and what righteous anger, anger actually looks like. That anger is actually against sin and not just my personal desires or preferences. That anger throbs, you might say, with kingdom concerns. That righteous anger is always controlled. It's never accompanied by uh, ungodly qualities, but godly qualities expressed in godly ways. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we as a, a group of individuals, that we as a group of people, as a church, would move towards good and specific ends for um, the healthy, righteous anger that Christians should have, the humility that we should have as those who have experienced your mercy. Lord, let not justice be in the back of our minds, 
because it wasn't in the back of yours. Lord, shape us so that we're less like Jonah and more like the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.